You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. Well, today we're ending our journey in the book of Malachi with chapter 4 and the two themes that the book of Malachi finishes with, right, in these, and there are six verses, six verses. Now, these two themes are very, very clear. Now, the, the first three verses, they have a theme, and in the last three verses, they have another theme, right? So, the first three verses talk about a judgment day, or the judgment day, and the last three verses talk about family relationships. And kind of, you can kind of see God's heart. I mean, the parting words, and then we have, you have 400 years of silence. But God finishes the Old Testament with, I want to talk about relationships. It's because he values relationships, and he values his relationship with us, and then we should value our relationship with him, right? But then we should value our relationship with one another. And that's exactly what he's trying to you know, get across, that he values relationships. We live in a day when very few people fear God's judgment. It's like, what? Say what? Is there a judgment coming? <laughs> the way I see things is that the God of most Americans um, is feeble. Um, he is a tolerant old man who would never send anyone to hell, right, except the very worst kind of people. Right? Unless you're, you know, you're a terrorist or a mass murderer, a serial rapist, you have nothing to fear come Judgment Day, right? And you, and you, can, you can get this just from a, a, just a common conversation. You don't, you don't have to go too far to realize that, oh, people think that they're good. And, you know, unless you're, you know, a murderer, you're perfectly fine. Why do you think this is the case? Where do we get this theology? Well, the popular theology of our day is that if you're, you know, if you think that you're a good person, right, it doesn't matter what you may believe about Jesus. It doesn't matter what you may believe about God. I mean, don't worry about your sins, right? God understands and will overlook them. And plus, someday we'll all, we're all going to be in heaven together in spite of our many, many faults. I think it is extremely, extremely, did I say extremely? extremely important that we base our view of God on His Word, and that we base our view of a of, of future judgment, if there is one, on His Word, not on common notions of popular culture, right? I mean, just look for a second where our society finds itself. Look where people find themselves when following the common notions of popular, you know, culture. Look at the lives of celebrities, Look at the destruction in, in their lives, right? And, and sometimes even so-called Christian celebrities. Look at, look at the lives of politicians, right? And following common notions of popular culture will tear a path of destruction in your life and in your relationships. And it starts first by driving a wedge between you and God. And then everything else falls apart. If we join our culture in thinking that God's judgment is not a big deal, ah, not a big deal. It's not really for us. We got nothing to fear when, in fact, we are in danger of coming under that judgment. We would be in for a big surprise, to say the least, a horrible shock on that day. On the other hand, if, in fact, we will be delivered from judgment according to God's promises and, and, and being in Christ, being hidden in Christ, 
we would be putting ourselves through unnecessary and useless misery to live in fear of that day, right? Now, the first three verses of our text show, show us exactly just that. So let me just read the first three verses, and then we're going we're gonna to go to work, and then the last three verses. So verse 1 to 3, Malachi chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. Some heavy words, right? The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, S-U-N, the Son of Righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Amen. So the main, um, two main points that stand out when we read the first three verses in regards to a judgment day are this. The coming, this coming day of judgment should bring a lot of fear to all that scoff at God, to all that rebel against God, but sweet comfort to all that fear His name. Those are the, just kind of the main two points. So that, our, that, that what our text is saying in a kind of play on words kind of way, the day of judgment is to disturb the comfortable and to comfort the disturbed. We will get um, to this in, in a few moments. We're, we're going to unpack it for a little bit. But for now, the first point that Malachi makes is that this day of judgment is coming for sure. It's, it's certain. It's, just, it's coming. And it's all over this text. Not only in this text, but in the previous chapter we have mention of that as well. Real quick question for you. What happens in your soul as I, as I say that, that, hey, there's a day of judgment coming? Or when we read a passage, what happens inside? What are some of the emotions that you feel when you hear that there's a day of judgment and it's coming for sure? What does it do in here? So verse 1 states twice, the day is coming. And verse 3 underscores that God is preparing that day. Now, twice it is emphasized that this wording comes from none other than the Lord of hosts, right? Who rules over the, you know, the entire universe, both physical and spiritual. There was a passage in Acts when Apostle Paul told his skeptical audience at Mars Hill, chapter 17, verse 31, this is what the Bible says. God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, speaking about Christ, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, if the Lord who spoke the universe into existence, who holds the universe by the power of his word, has fixed that day, you can count on it. You can surely count on it. It's, it's for sure coming. It is certainly coming. Fun fact. Malachi mentions this coming day four times in the closing verses of his prophecy. We have one in verse 17 in, in chapter 3. And then three times in, this, in six verses in, in chapter 4, verse 1, 3, and 5. It is coming. Another fun fact, and this is why I love the Bible, because it, was, it is not written by man ultimately, but by God. Uh, we're talking about 66 books written by God through 40 different authors living in different places at different times, and they come together beautifully. So I love the Bible because it's reliable, and it's right on the money all the time. Now, fun fact, we have five Old Testament prophets working in four different and separate centuries. 
Check this out. That have prophetic words from the Lord and point ahead to this final day of judgment. How beautiful is that? And they all come together. We have Obadiah and Joel, right, in the 19th century. We have Isaiah in the 8th century. You have Zephaniah in the 7th century and Ezekiel in the 6th century, all speaking about this final day of judgment. Now, each of these prophets saw fulfillment in specific events of their own times, right? And yet, each of these prophecies have a still yet unfulfilled future nuance, speaking about the day of judgment. In other words, there have been a number of precursor days of the Lord, such as the destruction of Jerusalem under the King Nebuchadnezzar and again under Titus 70 AD, right? And all of these point ahead to the final day of judgment at the end of history, which our verse 5 points to as well. Now, the irony is that the very people who need to hear this and who need to fear this coming day of judgment are usually the ones that scoff at it, are usually the ones that just kind of mock it, like, what are you talking about, man? Come on, this is a fairy tale. It is kind of like when pastors struggle with the, the, the fact that they want to preach certain messages and they're hoping certain people come to church that day, you know what I mean? <laughs> it happens to me too, <laughs> right? And, and so what happens is, is the ones that are always there, the ones that are always committed, the servants who sacrifice always, they are the ones that end up hearing the tougher messages. So I'm sorry, church, you get to hear a tough message, but I wanted the other people to be here. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Peter points this out. In 2 Peter um, chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Check this out. That in the last days, mocker, mockers will come who will say, where is the promise of His coming? So the biblical wording is clear. And just because judgment is delayed, or at least that's what we may think, that's what people think, right? It, is, it does not mean that it won't happen. God has fixed that day, and He's not delayed by His time. It is coming with certainty, or else God is lying, and we know God is not lying. Now, verse 2 and 3, the purpose of these verses is to comfort the Lord's people. So, thank you for coming to church, because you're going to be encouraged and comforted this morning. And here's the main idea of, this, of these verses, verses 2 and 3. If we fear God now, church, and there's a healthy fear, if we fear God now, we do not need to fear His judgment on that terrible day. That's the point. That's the point that Malachi is trying to make. And the reality, and we all know this, that is that the devil, the enemy of our souls, comes along and uses this healthy fear of God to produce in us an unhealthy anxiety when it comes to standing before him on that judgment day. He does that all the time. And he's very good at it because he's doing it. He's been doing it for a while. And he uses... Uh, he accuses us of all of our sins, which we must admit are true, right? And the only way to overcome his accusations is through the blood of the Lamb. We, we see this in Revelation 12, pretty much the gospel, right? That the, the, the blood of the Lamb takes care of our sin, right? So church, we have to get really good at clinging to the cross at dropping off our shame and our condemnation and our guilt at the foot of the cross in prayer by confessing it on a daily basis, by repenting on a daily basis, right? And we got we to gotta get really good at this. And in that way, you do not need to fear judgment, my friend. You do not, because you're in Christ. 
Let me just remind us, church, that the Bible is abundantly clear that we are justified through faith alone in Christ alone. I want to give you some homework for home, uh, to take home. Man, this is Romans. We don't have time to get into this. So Romans chapter 3, go home and read Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. It just, it's so beautiful how it speaks that we're justified by Christ alone and faith alone. Now, speaking about the judgment day and that the fire will be burning like an oven, right? There's pretty, pretty uh, you know, pretty intense language, right? There's a pretty cool way of illustrating this by a technique used by people who fight forest fires. They light a backfire along a break in the path of the advancing fire. That's what they do, right? Now, the idea is that when the fire gets to where the, you know, the backfire has already burnt, there won't be anything left to burn. And so the fire will go out eventually, right? That's what they do. In the same way, God judged our sins and Jesus on the cross. And the fires of judgment burn him. And if we are in Jesus, if we are in him by faith, then the fire won't harm us. It has nothing left to burn since Jesus bore that himself. Now, looking at verse 2, we find this little interesting choice of words. And it says, the son of righteousness, not S-O-N, but the S-U-N. The son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Long story short, I believe that our text is messianic. It speaks about Jesus, points to Jesus again. I believe the whole Old Testament does that. So here we find a reference to Jesus Christ, the Son of Righteousness. And the word wings is poetic language for the rays of the sun. So in other words, the warm rays of the Son of Righteousness will bring healing, will bring restoration. And it literally uses the word healing in the verse, right? Now one of the devil's lies, guys, one of the devil's lies is to get people to think to get us to think that, that sin brings satisfaction, right? Um, how many of us have, have believed that lie, right? And, and we still do to some extent. And that living for God is just not fun. Are you kidding me? You guys are just so old school and if you, you believe that kind of stuff. That's not fun. And it's, it's restrictive, right? But the truth is that sin always brings disease and death. That's not fun. That's not satisfying. It may be for a second, Right? And living for God, living in righteousness, heals and restores. Have you ever had the flu where your bones literally ache? I think COVID kind of does that too. And if it's gloomy or damp outside, it only seems to just make it worse. But if the sun comes out and it breaks through the clouds and, and you find a chair in the sunlight, you know, coming through a window, these warm rays of sun, they feel so good on your aching bones. That's why people, a lot of people that have, you know, a lot of bone pains, they, they want to move down south and they want to experience that sun, right? Now, that is an earthly illustration of the spiritual truth of the gospel. And it's, it's this truth that when we repent of our sin, when we turn away from our sin and we look to Christ and begin to live in the warm rays of God's righteousness, He brings healing from the wounds of sin in our life. He does that. So what else is the son of righteousness going to do? Well, the next little line in verse 2 says, you will go out leaping like calves from the stall. Interesting language. Very poetic again. Not sure if we need a lot of experience in farming to understand this line. This may just be common sense that after being cooped up in a stall, calves would literally jump for joy if you would let them out of the stall. 
I just take it literally like that. But what is this talking about? What should we get out of this? So not only does Jesus brings does Jesus bring healing and restoration to our soul from the disease of sin, but it says here that we have the absolute great joy of being freed from the bondage of sin and judgment. You leap like a cow. <laughs> But it's beautiful because it, it, it points to this amazing spiritual truth. So, so listen, Christian. This is a promise that we have for now. Not only did Jesus pay for the wages of sin, took the punishment of sin in, in our place, that when we sit before him on judgment day, the fire is not going to burn us, but it's going to lift us up and we're going to get to live with him forever. But he broke the power of sin in our life as well. And what Malachi is saying is that there's amazing joy in that. Amazing joy in that, that Jesus broke the power of sin in our life to experience here. Do you know why we're not really happy when we hear stuff like that? Because there's not much evidence in our life that, that, that the power of sin is broken in our life. First, do we even know what it means that the power of sin is broken in our life? But you don't have to do that anymore. Well, you know, that thing that you say that you're addicted to, you don't have to do it anymore. The anger that you say that comes over you and you cannot overcome, you don't have to do that anymore. The immoral thing that we keep on doing when no one is watching, Jesus freed us from that. That's what this means. We don't have to be a slave to sin anymore. Do you know why we still kind of do stuff like that? We simply do not take Jesus at his word. We don't. We don't believe that the power of sin is broken in our life. We don't. It comes to faith, believing what Jesus said. But let me just refresh our memory with this amazing passage from Romans 6, 5 to 8. And just take it home and please just, you know, camp on this for a while. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, check this out, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. You know, you know what our problem is? We just linger at the cross for too long. And we just, you know, over our brokenness and all sinful. Sure, sure, that's only half of the gospel, friend. It's only half of the gospel, Sure. Verse 6, we know that our old self was, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's beautiful. In verse 7, for no one who, who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that he will also, we will also live with him. How beautiful is that? You don't have to do that. I don't have to do that anymore. That thing that I've been doing for 20 years. You don't. Let's take Jesus at his word. This is wonderful news. There's simply no greater joy than the news that God has sent a Savior to set us free, not only from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin as well. And this is, we get to experience this already down here. But, it's, and it's just, it's up to us, in a sense, if we believe that. Let's believe and have full faith in His promises so that we may be filled with joy now. Amen? So the Son of Righteousness brings healing, right? 
where there was disease, and, and joy where there was sadness. And now the last thing that it says in regards to the gospel in Jesus Christ at the beginning of verse 3. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under your feet. Ooh, pretty intense. What is this talking about? <laughs> it is of no surprise that there are many injustices in our world, is there? Where innocent people suffer and the evil and the corrupt often literally get away with so much. And this was exactly what the Israelites were, were pointing to in chapter 3. Where they were asking God, hey, 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 God, why are our neighbors and bosses so corrupt, so evil, right? And they're just having a blast. They have the, the bigger houses and cars and they're blessed. They have families. They have wealth and, and health. What's going on? But here is God's answer pointing us again to Jesus. When the sun of righteousness rises in that final day that God is preparing, all the wrong will be righted. That's what he's saying by this. Perfect justice will prevail. Every evil thing will be undone. Your heart, friend, and my heart will finally be set free from the heartache and the pain and the anxiety that is created by an unjust world. Right? Every sinner that is not found in Christ, every sinner that is not found in Christ will be judged according to his works, and the righteous will rejoice at that. By the way, allow me a little bit of a, a rabbit trail. Did you know that in heaven, our home, heaven, our home, based on Revelation 21, and actually based on the whole Bible, nothing that shall offend the most delicate eye will be there. That's, that's a Jonathan Edwards idea. In other words, nothing that is abrasive will be there. Nothing that is irritating, agitating, or hurtful is going to be there. Nothing harmful, hateful, upsetting, or unkind will be there. Nothing sad, bad, mad, harsh, and patient, unworthy will be there. Nothing like that. Nothing weak, sick, broken, or foolish. Nothing deformed, degenerate, depraved, or disgusted. Nothing polluted, pathetic, poor, putrid, or dark will be there. Nothing like that. Nothing blameworthy, nothing blasphemous, nothing faulty, faithless, frail, or fading. Nothing like that. Nothing grotesque or grievous. Nothing hideous or insidious. Nothing illicit or illegal or lustful. Nothing mutilated or misinformed. Nothing nasty or naughty or offensive. Nothing rude, soiled, spoiled, tasteless, tainted, vile, vicious, or wasteful. None of it will be there. Because God cannot stand in the presence of that which is sinful. Nothing that offends the most delicate eye will be there. So how will we ever get there? Right? How am I ever going to get there? I scored some big points at all those things that I listed. Only through his perfect sacrifice in Christ alone, by grace alone. Amen. So let me finish the point. You may wonder, I thought that vengeance is wrong. How are we going to rejoice when, you know, every unjust thing will be, you know, righted, right? How can the righteous rejoice over treading the wicked underfoot like ashes? Now let me just say this. Personal vengeance is sinful, is a sin, is wrong. 
personal vengeance is wrong. But it is not wrong to long for the day when God will exercise His perfect justice. There's much, much comfort when it comes to that. Let's continue with verses 4 to 6. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statues and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, come, the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. A boy once asked his father, Hey, Dad, how do wars begin? Well, son, take for instance the First World War they, that got started when Germany invaded Belgium, and immediately his wife is interrupted, Hey, 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 tell the boy the truth. Come on now. It began when somebody was murdered. The husband felt so offended at that and just snapped right back saying, Are you answering the question or am I answering the question? Excuse me? And the wife just walked out of the room, just slammed the door as hard as she could. And then when the dishes, you know, stopped rattling in the cupboard in the kitchen, an uneasy silence followed, broken by the son saying, Dad, you don't have to tell me that anymore. I, I know the answer now. <laughs> I don't think it's a surprise that American families are fracturing at an alarming rate. And only 34% of all children born in America will live with both biological parents by the age of 18. I think the numbers are even lower than that. This, this was taken, like I think, five or ten years ago. But most will never know their fathers. That's just the reality, let alone experience relationship or love. Now, if those statistics were only out there in the world, the secular world, right, it would be alarming enough. But Christians don't fare much better than the world when it comes to dysfunctional or broken families. Now, again, when I say Christians, I mean everyone that calls themselves a Christian. Just want to add that. Nevertheless, to me, that is one of the saddest things. It is. I mean, what good is our faith if it doesn't result in daily loving relationships, at least in your family? Like, what, what good is it that we come to church and we call ourselves Christians, right, when we're just broken outside or inside in the family? Malachi's parting words tell us how to have reconciled families. Now, Malachi was the last of the Old Testament prophets, and after him there was no fresh word from the Lord for four long centuries until John the Baptist came onto the scene, right, preaching in the wilderness. In his parting word, God speaks to his people about nothing other than reconciled families. Interesting. So it's not a minor subject. It's, it's just not. God shows that the only alternative, actually, to reconciled families is his curse upon the land. And we see this in verse 6, because that's exactly how he finishes the Old Testament. If you guys don't follow my blueprint, there's a curse coming, your choice. And that's how the Old Testament finishes. Our families are the building block of our churches and of our entire society. I know, we, I know you've heard this before. If our families are fractured, what do we expect of our nation? Right? We will have a fractured nation, a broken nation, and it is of no surprise that we are where we are right now, right? 
this exact progression we see here in these last three verses. First, there was personal separation from God, right? Due to neglecting his word. You see this in verse 4. I just read this. Guys, remember Moses' law, right? So if you neglect that, that's, that's the first step, right? Next, there was family alienation and separation from God in, 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 verse, in verse 6, part A, right? Because he said that, hey, the hearts of the Father and the hearts of the... They mean that they had broken relationships. And if that were not corrected, the final step would be national decline and fall. The curse that our chapter finishes with. Now, what Malachi is telling us in these three verses is the answer to all of our broken relationships. Are you ready for this? He's got the answer. He has the answer. The key to reconciled families is that we obey God's word. That's all I have. Okay, let's pray now. Let's go home, right? No, seriously, but that's, that's what it says. That may strike us as an overly simplistic answer in our complex problems. And you may say stuff like, hey, Ovi, that answer just ignores my abusive father, right? And all of the emotional pain that he's put me through for years. Ovi, not, not, too, not too fast, man, you know, that answer glosses the poor communication that I have with my wife and then the friction and then the fights and the arguments, you know, that's, that's, that's real, man. The answer doesn't help me deal with my rebellious teenagers. Come on now. That's overly simplistic. I think I understand that it's not always easy to get to the root of these problems. And it's not easy to apply the solution. It is not. But I'm here to say that virtually and fundamentally, all of our relational problems in our families stem from disobedience to God's word from at least one, if not almost always, more than one family member. That's the truth. That's the reality. I think it's pretty simple to understand what the Bible says. It's not easy to apply, not easy to do, but simple to understand that if we obey God's word, we love God. And then we love one another as we do, in fact, love ourselves. Additionally, the Bible says in 2 Peter 1.3 that His divine power, check this out, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So since God's Word is sufficient to equip us and to train us for all that life throws at us, we do not need to go to the therapist to get in touch with our feelings and to learn to cope with our rage. That may help. That may help, but it doesn't get to the root problem, to the root of the problem. That's why our problems are never fixed. It's called behavior modification, right? It may feel good for a season that you're back at it or in a different arena of life, right? We need to go deeper with God through His Word. That's the answer because God's Word deals with the root problem, and that should take care of it. The problem is that we don't do that. We just don't. And then we say stuff like, well, the, the, the word of God is not good enough. I need the therapist. I need the counsel. I need that. I need that. Sure, that helps. I'm not saying that God cannot speak to those people, but the root problem is only fixed through his word. And our problem is that we don't take God at his word. We just don't. And that he designed the blueprint for how our families should function. And every time we deviate from that plan, we hurt ourselves and everyone along the way. So let's look then at the root cause of fractured and broken relationships. Well, I think it's simple. 
family separation results from forgetting and disobeying God's word. That's what these verses say. From forgetting and disobeying God's word. It's pretty simple. Now, sin always results in separation. I just want you to think of a, of a well, kind of an example in your own life, a, a fragmented relationship, an argument that you had with a family member, right? And just kind of play it in your mind how it just kind of unfolded as I'm going through these steps, right? So sin always results in separation towards God and towards one another. That's always the case, right? When Adam and Eve sinned, the Bible said that they hid from God and then they suffered distance in their own relationships. Now, Adam began to blame Eve and then God and for his, his problems. We see this in Genesis chapter 3. Now, how does that work? Well, the simple answer is this. Sin leads to guilt, right? We've all experienced that. Now, guilt not properly dealt with will lead to blame. Connect those. And then blame leads to anger, and then anger leads to separation. That's the progression every single time we get into a fight argument and you just, that relationship is broken. This is a basic pattern that applies to all relationships. One party wrongs the other party, right? The party retaliates with anger or resentment or some way of, you know, I'll get even with you, you know, I'll even the score. And instead of going to the cross, instead of humbling themselves before God, asking for forgiveness, and then asking forgiveness of the other party, then both sides begin blaming each other because that's what sin does. Unrepentant sin invites more sin to the party, and the heart begins to harden, and it becomes more blind to the truth. And no wonder we separate because we're blind to the truth. We blame the other person, and we don't see the log in our eye, right? Now, if this isn't dealt with the right way, it just creates more anger, which creates further distance and separation. And at the bottom of this whole vicious cycle is the root sin of pride, of pride. So then what is the solution? What is the solution, church? Well, are we ready to listen? Because God spoke about these matters. God cares about relationships, and he spoke about these matters. And he gave us the blueprint. He gave us the solution. God says in verse 4, remember the law of Moses, my servant. There you go. There's the answer. Even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Now, the word remember is used 14 times in Deuteronomy with regard to the law, right? And it means not only to recall what the law says, but to obey the law. That was always understood. Spurgeon said this, backsliders begin with dusty Bibles. I would like us to notice, to know that there, uh, there's a threefold progression here in these verses, right? And the first thing is that we forget God's Word. We forget God's Word. That's where it all begins, Right? I've had people say to me so many times, I'm sure you've had that too. Hey, dude, you always talk about being in the Word and studying the Word. I mean, how many times do we have to do that for crying out loud? Well, let me say this. Not sure about your brain, but my brain leaks all the time. So God says, remember my law. If we forget it, we will not obey it. If we forget it, we will not obey it. It's as simple as that. Do you know why we meet at church on Sundays, church? Do you know why we meet every Sunday? 
Because we forget. Because we forget. What one of the reasons? Because we forget. Do you know why we take communion? What does Jesus say? Do this in remembrance of me. Because you forget. Do you know why we meet for D groups Tuesdays and Thursdays? Do you know why we study His Word over and over? Do you know why we pray for one another? Because we forget God's promises. We forget His encouragements. We forget His solutions. We forget His instructions. We forget. We simply forget. That's why. So the first thing is that we forget God's Word. The second thing, we disobey God's Word. We disobey God's Word. Remember chapter 3? Where these Jewish people were blaming God because they, they, were, they weren't... It wasn't going well for them, right? But it never occurred to them that they are the problem and not God. Proverbs 19.3 says this, People ruin their lives by their own foolishness and then are angry at the Lord. <laughs> that's, that's funny to me because we do this. <laughs> I do this. There's so much of this going on where people uh, go for counsel because they have major issues in their families and you don't even... You don't even have to listen for too long before you can see that they're violating God's word in so many areas, so many areas. But, but they will always do this. They whine and then they complain, why is God allowing this in my life? I can't believe it. He's not a good God. Like the people of Malachi's day, they are blind to their own disobedience because they have forgotten God's word. It's as simple as that. So people forget God's word, then inevitably they are disobedient, and then the last step, we ex then we experience separation. If we're not repenting of this, if we're not confessing, if we're not bringing it to the Lord, we will experience separation. See, God never divorces the spiritual from the relational. But we often do. We, we often say stuff like, I'm good with the Lord, but that wife of mine, oh, I, I love the Lord. But those kids of mine, I can just beat them up on a daily basis. I'm so good with the Lord. We just, we just commune and we have this sweet time, but I cannot stand my neighbor. Yeah, it doesn't go like that. It doesn't, but God connects our relationship with him and our relationship with others. They cannot be separated. Do you remember what Apostle John said? And we, we, we uh, studied this earlier in the year, and he bluntly says in 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. When fathers turn away in, from disobedience, from disobeying God's word, the result will always be separation between them and their children, always. Let me give you an example. Well, this happens a lot in our, in our lives, in our families, even Christian homes. Scripture is clear that, that, that fathers should not get angry and harsh with their children. We see this in Ephesians 6.4. James 1.20 says that, hey, the anger of men does not produce the righteousness of God, right? Yet so many professing Christian fathers are perpetually angry with their children. They sound like a drill sergeant yelling and barking orders on their, at their kids, even when they correct them. It's like correcting their pets, you know? And at the same time, what's sad is that they don't bring their anger under the control of the Holy Spirit. What's sad is that they, don't, they, they never humble themselves in front of their kids and ask for forgiveness when they do sin. So they do not demonstrate to their kids the gracious love of Jesus. They never do that. And I'll tell you what happens. 
when kids hit their teen years and rebel and dad shakes his head saying, oh, I can't believe that, that that kid is doing that after all I've done for him. I just don't understand why he's giving us all this trouble. When we forget and disobey God's word, we will experience family separation and alienation and broken relationships. That's just the reality. Okay, okay, okay. We've messed up. The question is, how do we experience reconciliation in our families then? How do we fix this? Enough of the negative stuff. How do we fix this, right? Well, good question. If the recipe for broken relationships is forgetting God's word and then disobeying God's word and then we experience separation, what do you think that the recipe for building our family relationship is? Family reconciliation, yes, results from remembering and obeying God's word. How are you doing with that? How are you doing with that, Christian? The entire Bible is a manual for relationships. Did you know that? I mean, the two greatest commandments, the two greatest commandments in the Bible are loving God with all your heart and loving your neighbor as yourself. And the Bible explains diligently why we are separated from God because of our sin. And how we can be reconciled to God through faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible is very clear and thorough on how to maintain a close walk with God through daily faith and obedience and repentance. And at the same time, it explains why we are separated from one another. The same cause, because we're sinful. And then in the same way, the Bible is very clear and thorough on how to be reconciled to one another through following God's instructions in our relationships. So to reverse the cycle, number one, we need to remember God's word. If you want to work at reconciliation, the first step is you need to remember God's word. Do not even move an inch further. You need to remember God's word. Be in the word. Love the word. Be saturated in the word. But the problem is that you can't obey it if you don't remember it. You just can't. You can't remember what it says if you haven't diligently studied it in the first place. And we can't use our lack of knowledge or our short memories as a valid excuse for disobedience. There's so much to say when it comes to this. I'll just limit myself at two things. The first thing is this. You only remember what you already know. You only remember what you already know. That sounds so obvious that it's just ridiculous, right? But it's, it's not. Many Christians disobey God's word all over the place, often through ignorance. Well, I didn't know that the Bible says that. Well, my pastor said this. Well, that book that I read said this. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> but when they start reaping the consequences of their disobedience, they blame God and they blame everyone else. But at the root of the problem, at their problem, is the fact that they never learned God's word in the first place. Someone way smarter than, than me pointed out that there are two kinds of laws, man-made laws and natural laws. Now, a man-made law, for example, would be a city's parking ordinances. Don't park there because you'll get a ticket, right? Now, natural laws um, would be if you put your hand in the fire, you're going to get burnt, right? That's just a natural law. Now, natural laws are not affected by man. They're not. So the city council could pass a resolution that says, hey, everyone, we want to announce everyone that you put, your, put your hand in the fire and you will not get burned. We promise this. No, no, I would not advise you that you would test that law, right? What am I saying by this? The law of God is like the natural law. 
you don't break it without it turning around and breaking you. It has built-in consequences. The human race can get together and agree that it's, it's now okay to engage in, in adultery. It's okay to engage in homosexuality. It's okay to engage in abortion, right? We can all decide that anger is not a sin anymore, everyone. But that doesn't change God's law. That doesn't change the reality of the truth. It just doesn't. So our opinions and resolutions do not alter the law of God. He has ordained that if we sow to the flesh, we will reap from the flesh destructions. Galatians 6, 8. Now, if a man sticks his hand into the fire and then complains, I didn't know that that would be the case. His ignorance doesn't alter the fact that he got burned. Now, the fire burns everyone, even those who are ignorant of the truth. So the point that we're trying to make here is this. Sin destroys people and relationships, even when those that are sinning do not realize that they are sinning. So if you want to remember God's word, well, we must apply ourselves. I hate using that kind of a language, but we do. We have to learn it. We have to study it. We have to read it over and over and soak in it, love it, be into it. Memorize key verses that tell you how to love your neighbor, how to love your wife, how to love your husband. We got to do that. You will only remember and obey what you already know. Secondly, you remember what you regard as important. You remember what you regard as important. I've heard many complain that they just can't remember what the Bible says. They say, I've got a horrible memory. But that is usually not the case. Unless you've suffered from a brain disease like Alzheimer's or, or something similar to that, you, you can remember the things that are important to you, can you? The key to this is to regard the information as vitally important. But do we? One of the main reasons why we forget God's word is that we do not regard it as crucial for our survival. We do not. It's like, oh, just like kind of, just like any other book. We have to come to a place where we see that this book holds the answers to life's most important questions. And that it tells us and instructs us how to know God and how to walk with him and how to love our neighbor, including the neighbors who live under the same roof as we do. Your family members. So, remember God's word, right? Secondly, we need to obey God's word. So not just remember it, then you need to obey it. Now, it is very interesting, and, and, and bear with me for a second here. It is very interesting that both Moses and Elijah are mentioned in our text. Did you notice that? Moses wrote the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the Torah, right? And Elijah symbolizes the prophets, Now he, he, although he did not write any prophetic books. The law and the prophets was a common way of referring to the entire Old Testament. We see this in Luke 24. Let me just say this as well. The Bible says in Luke 1.17 that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah as the forerunner of Christ in his first coming. And before Christ's second coming, another will come probably Elijah himself, to give people one last chance to repent before judgment. And we see this in Matthew 17, Revelation 11. Now, the application for us is that we need to obey all of God's word, especially as it relates to our family relationships. So let's look at one thing here. God's word is often very confrontational. Very confrontational. 
Notice that God doesn't say, Behold, I am going to send a therapist to help you work through your rage towards your emotionally abusive father. And I don't want to be sensitive to that, but he doesn't say that. He promised to send Elijah the prophet. And just in case you didn't know, Elijah was probably the most confrontational prophet in all of the Old Testament. So was John the Baptist, which, they mentioned, which he's mentioned, who called the religious, his audience, the religious leaders, a brood of vipers. These guys were not nice. <laughs> if God's word steps on your toes, if it offends you, welcome to the club. I feel the same way, and I should. That's what, that's what it is designed to do. One of the things that God's word is designed to do is to, is to do that, offend us. Let me just remind us that God's love is not a... a coddling kind of a love not a pampering kind of a love it is a perfecting kind of a love and that sometimes hurts and that's because we wouldn't budge from our selfishness and sinful ways god is loving oh yeah the jews didn't like the confrontational way of malachi's prophecy and how it ended did you know that just like we probably it probably doesn't sit well with us either They're talking about a curse on the land if they wouldn't obey if they wouldn't choose god's blueprint for their families now listen to how crazy this is. Check this out. In the Hebrew Bible, verse 5 is repeated again after verse 6. Because they just hated how it ended with verse 6. Yeah. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek Bible of the Old Testament, verse 4 is repeated after verse 6. In fact, they did the same thing at the end of Isaiah, Lamentations, and Ecclesiastes. Because they hated how these books ended with a curse. They said, no, 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 no. We're going to kind of alter God's word a little bit. But let me just say this, the, the Lord knows that our proud and stubborn hearts need some direct confrontation as the parting words to remember. Church, sometimes we need an occasional Elijah in our lives to get in our faces that we would deal with our sin and to be ready for that crazy day of judgment. That's one of the great benefits of reading the Bible consistently. In 2 Timothy 3.16, the, the Word of God says, all scriptures God breathed and is used for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And then the last point, so remembering God's word, obeying God's word, and, and lastly, family reconciliation will result from obedience. The hearts of fathers, that's what it says, will be restored to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. One mark of true conversion, listen to this church, one mark of true conversion is when the bitterness of past brokenness and separation between fathers and children is healed and their hearts are reunited in love before a holy God. And that goes for every relationship, any dynamic, every dynamic. Maybe you're wondering, Ovi, why are you mentioning fathers but not mothers? The answer is the text mentioned fathers, but we can easily extend everything I've said to mothers. But I mention fathers because so many American men, even Christian men, are relationally passive in their homes, and I am tempted to do the same thing. And they leave the spiritual training of their children only to their wives, and that's it. You take care of them. They just don't make the time because they put in excessive time on the job or whatever project that we have, rationalizing it by saying that they are showing their love by providing for their families. That's not how you provide in the first place. But if you are an absent, passive father, and if, 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 if you are not relating to your family in God's love, you are not providing what they need most, I don't care how many millions we make. Let me close with a, a Spurgeon quote. 
Because what's a sermon without a Spurgeon quote at the end, right? I'm kidding, obviously. Some people like to read so many Bible chapters every day. I would not dissuade them from the practice, but I would rather lay my soul a soak in half a dozen verses all day than rinse my hand in several chapters, all to be bathed in the text of Scripture and to let it be sucked up in your very soul till it, it saturates your heart. I end quote. I don't know, I read that and I, I'm like, what, 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 was, what was Spurgeon up to? Like that language about loving the word to such an extent. How, how do you even get there and why? And I find that the psalmist that, that wrote Psalm 119 was kind of the same way. If you read it, it's the longest psalm, but he, he just goes just kind of a different so poetic, like, I love God's law. I just cherish God's law. I love being in it. It's just so amazing. It's life-giving over and over and over again. These guys are up to something. We're up to, they, they, they found the secret, right? And I think that Spurgeon read the Bible with a careful, engaged mind, right? I'm pretty sure we can say that. But that's not enough. Did you know that that's not enough? Because we know many people who know the Bible better than we do, but completely deny Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. So having, en engaging the Bible just with your mind is not enough. So many people know the Bible a lot more than we do. So, so read the Bible not only with an engaged mind, but at the same time, a relentlessly engaged heart. And that's the secret. I think that's the secret that Spurgeon kind of found or, or the psalm that wrote Psalm 19. And this is what many of us do, I think, and that's why the Bible becomes boring because we're not engaging our hearts. Our hearts are not engaged, just our minds, just like any other book. This is what another saint said, and I quote, we read the Bible with our minds to see the glory of God and we read the Bible with our hearts so we can savor the glory of God. How beautiful is that? We read and we study and analyze and memorize the Bible through our minds and with our minds. But then, church, we do not stop looking until our hearts are satisfied in the Lord. We do not stop reading and looking until our hearts are happy and satisfied in the Lord. Until we feel fresh, a fresh joy in some aspect of who God is and what He has done for us in Christ. Because this word is Jesus. He's the word incarnate. If we don't love the Bible, we don't love Jesus. Can you stand with me? Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.